Nice to see you all. My name is Darren. If I haven't met you, I'd like to meet you. How come we haven't met? What's going on? Make sure you come and say hey. Uh, I'm one of the shepherds on staff, and we're in an ongoing study in the book of Genesis. So if you're a guest with us today or you're visiting for the first time, uh, open your Bible. Oh, all of you, open your Bibles to Genesis 29. That's where we're going to get started. But if you're a guest, you should know, too, we have, uh, we have these Genesis journals, and I don't have one here, but it's a great tool. There's one up here on the table. We have them in the lobby. It's a great tool just to keep track of questions you might have, uh, things you want to remember, stuff God might say to you in the midst of the study, and we have one of those for you. So that's not a thing we sell. That's a thing that's a gift to you, but it might be a helpful tool going forward uh, to be able to track along in this study of Genesis. Now, another thing that is typically the way we do things around here is we'll usually stand and read the text together before we study it. Uh, This morning, we're going to study all of Genesis 29. So there's like 35 verses there and then half of Genesis 30, which has another 24 verses. So we're we're taking a big chunk of the scripture this morning. And uh, I looked for like a smaller section we could read that would be a decent summary. And it's actually, there's not like a great way to grab like 10 verses to summarize the overarching theme. So we're just going to work through this together. I'm not going to have you stand up and sit down and stand up and sit down. We'll just kind of walk through it, and then, uh, and then I'll give you some reflection here at the end after we sort of read through it together. But let me say this before we dive into Genesis 29 and 30. This, uh, this is a text that has some really cute moments, so I want to say that at the outset. There are a couple of like cute little lovey-dovey romantic things in this but they are far uh, overwhelmed and sort of outweighed by how much cringy stuff happens in this text, right? So there's way more stuff that even as we read, I just want to tell you if you've never looked at these texts, I hope that as we're reading it, there are a lot of places that you go like, oh no, right? Because that should be your response. Like if you're reading this and you're like, this is awesome, you're reading it wrong, like you're misunderstanding, right? There's stuff in here that is very troubling and we're going to talk about it kind of as we go, But it's important for us to remember as an overview that when it comes to a text like this in Genesis 29 and 30, that this is one of those places where we want to be very careful that we understand that Moses, inspired by the Holy Spirit when he's writing, he's writing to us a descriptive text, not a prescriptive text, right? And there are different, there are places in the Bible that are prescriptive. There are places where God says, do this and do this or follow the example of this person. And then there are other places where it's descriptive and it's telling us a story, but it's not necessarily telling us a story that we should emulate or that you would look at the characters and go, oh, I'm gonna live like Jacob lived because that would be a bad choice, right? Um, what we wanna know in this text is that It is a descriptive text. It is not a myth. This isn't fable. This isn't an allegory that's meant to teach us a religious principle. This is a historical story, and it's told with its warts and all. Like, there's some stuff in this that's troubling, and that, while it might be shocking to you, it should also be comforting to you, because if you were to have your story told, right, if we were to take your story and God walking with you, there would both be some probably very cute, lovey-dovey moments, and also some cringy moments. And the same thing is true for me. We've all got high points, we've got low points, we've got moments of victory, and we've got moments of defeat. And, and what is comforting in a text like this, even with the cringy stuff, is that it's, it's reflective of actual human experience, right? Of God walking with people who aren't necessarily always polished, and in fact, sometimes are problematic. You'll see it as we go. Now, as we begin, we're going to read the first 14 verses or so. Uh, We pick up where we left off last week. God had come to Jacob in a dream. Jacob was traveling away from his brother Esau, who wanted to kill him. Remember that? Because he had 
lied to his father Isaac. He had taken the birthright and the blessing. Jacob is angry. Excuse me, Esau's angry and wants to kill Jacob. So Jacob flees and has the blessing of Isaac to go and to find a wife among his, uh, his mother's family, right? So he's sort of running away, but he's also running to the potential of finding a bride. God meets him on the path and reveals himself in the midst of a dream. And if you were part of our study last week, uh, you'll know that God reveals himself in this dream and Jacob's eyes are open. He says, I didn't even know God was with me here on the trail, but God reaffirms his promise, his covenantal promise to Jacob to be with him and to bless him and to give him descendants and to prosper him and to protect him. God reaffirms all those things. When we come to 29, literally there is a kind of a pep in his step, if you will. That's a, I didn't mean for that to rhyme, but it did. Uh, there is, there's like, the way this first verse could be translated, Genesis 29, is that he lifts up his feet to travel. There's a sense of joy and optimism. It's the same kind of phrasing that you would see in the Bible when it tells us that people lift up their eyes for, for deliverance or in hope, looking up for, for what is on the horizon. Jacob lifts up his feet and there is a sense of like enthusiasm and excitement about the future because of the reaffirmation of God's promise to him. And so he travels with this sort of optimism about the future. As you read the story, you'll see it, it, uh, it doesn't necessarily work out as great as he thought. I was reminded of all the times in the last two years when I felt like, okay, that's it. I think COVID's over. Now back to regular life, you know? And then like two or three days later, it's like back to masks or back to people sick and dying and whatever. Like there've been all these sort of false starts. I feel like frequently I sit down with my therapist on a Friday and, and he'll be like, how are you doing? And I'm like, I think I'm doing great. I think everything feels good. And then the next Friday I'm like, I don't know what's happening. Everything's hard, right? And it just depends on the week. That's kind of where Jacob is here. At the beginning of 29, he's got this enthusiasm and excitement, but it, uh, it's not going to last very long here in the midst of the text. It says this in verse 1. Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. And as he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it, for out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large, and when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, my brothers, where do you come from? And they said, we're from Haran. And he said to them, do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said, we know him. He said to them, is it well with him? And they said, it is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. He said, behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go pasture them. But they said, we cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came from her father's sheep, uh, came with her father's sheep, excuse me, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. As a side note, the first time you meet a girl, I don't know about the weeping. That might not be your best first step, but whatever. So he's He's overwhelmed, right? And that, that overwhelmness here is indicative of the fact that he feels like God is blessing him. He's been led straight to his uncle's family and straight to his uncle's daughter, Rachel, and straight to this place he has the power to even roll this stone away. We see in Jacob in this text a sense of like optimism and hope and energy. He's energized for the journey. So he sees Rachel and he, uh, he kisses her. He weeps aloud. By the way, that's not a... In this case, that's not a romantic kiss. It's just a familial kiss. 
Verse 12, Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son, and she ran and told her father. And as soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things, and Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh, and he stayed with him a month. Now there's a couple things you want to see in this opening section. Jacob is traveling away from murderous Esau to find a wife. And he comes to the territory of his ancestors, and he comes to a well. I guarantee you that Jacob had heard the story of when Abraham sent his servant to go and find a wife for his father Isaac, right? When, when he went and found his mother. And so Jacob comes, and there's a well, and there's a well in that other story. And he finds Laban's people that know Laban, and then he sees Rachel. And you guys, it just feels like God is giving him all of his desires, it feels like everything he was hoping to find and everything he was hoping to accomplish is sort of falling into his lap. And so we see him weeping and hugging and telling the story. There's a lot of running and excitement, right? Because he feels like all of the things he desires and all of the things that God promised, God is delivering. He can see the, the symbolism or the reflection of his own story and the story of his parents. And he's excited about the way this thing is all ticking together. Now on Laban's part, we see Laban running to meet Jacob as well. And you'll remember that when Abraham's servant went to find a wife for Isaac, he came with camels, he came with sheep, he came with jewelry, he came with riches, he came with all these promises. So you can imagine for Laban, he hears that Isaac's son is out by the well and Laban goes rushing out there. Why? Because there's something to be gained for him. He's rushing out there to see if there's more camels and more jewelry and more earrings and more prosperity to be gained, right? When he gets to Jacob, he will be disappointed because Jacob doesn't come bearing any of those things. So Jacob, if you remember, is away from his family. He doesn't have any camels. He doesn't have any wealth. He doesn't have anything of his own. And so there's a little bit of disappointment. And in fact, it tells us in the text that we just read that Jacob, uh, while he's warmly received, he stays with them a month, right? He stays with them a month, but he didn't, he didn't bring anything of his own. So he's living off of Laban for a month. So it's no wonder by the time we get to verse 15 that Laban suggests that maybe Jacob starts to work for a living, right, and quit freeloading. So in Genesis 29, 15, here we pick this up. It says, Laban said to Jacob, because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Notice the implication is you're going to serve me. What would you like to be paid? But there's no question about whether or not Jacob will be serving. Laban said, because you're my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah and the name of the younger was Rachel. And Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. And Jacob loved Rachel and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for you, had for her. Now, you look at 20, and that might be one of those cute moments, right? There's a little bit of romance here. That he worked seven years to marry Rachel, and it seemed to him as only a few days. Flutter, 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 right? You, you kind of get it. It's romantic. But it's hard to really glow in the romance of verse 20 because the verses that precede it really reduce these women to the way they look. And we could look at that and we could go, oh, well, that's just Bible times. But listen, it's the same thing that's happening in our world today. We continue to reduce other people to the way they appear or what they give to us or the value that culture says they have because of some sort of outlying factors. And I hate the fact that in this text, it says that Leah was weak in the eyes. Now, we don't know whether that means she, um, 
We don't know. Some, some commentators will say they think she had a vision problem. Some will simply say, hey, because it says she was weak in the eyes, but Rachel was beautiful, that maybe that just means she wasn't great to look at. Either way, I cringe that that's even a description that's used for these people, right? What a bummer for Leah, who's made in the image of God, created in the dignity and image of God, who is an image bearer, who God has a purpose and a plan for to be reduced to someone who's weak in the eyes. And you could look at that and say, well, don't miss the point of the story. I get it. But I just want to be really careful again to say that what we're seeing here is descriptive, not prescriptive. We should resist the temptation to look at other people and reduce them to their physical qualities or reduce them to what they look like to us or how they appear. That isn't something that God is endorsing here and we don't want to see it as an endorsement. We'll we'll get back to that in a few minutes. What we see in these verses is that Jacob has no gifts, no camels. Laban quickly encourages employment. Jacob and Laban are essentially cut from the same cloth. When, when Laban says, you are my bone and my flesh, he's alluding both to the fact that uh, they are, they're related to each other, but there's also some foreshadowing of the fact that they're the same kind of guy, that they're deceivers, that they're manipulators, right? Laban, in this case, is driven by his desires in the same way that Jacob is driven by his desires. In fact, what we'll see with every character in these two chapters is that they're all driven by their desires and not by a care or concern for other people. Laban wants a worker. He wants to get seven years of labor, and in fact, he's going to end up manipulating things to get more than that. So look at what happens as we continue to read verse 21. Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife that I may go into her for my time is completed. The fact that Jacob has to tell him, hey, my time is up, I want to marry Rachel, indicates that Laban is not in a rush to marry Rachel, even though he promised to do that. Jacob has to insist upon it. Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife that I may go into her for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant, and in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, it's not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Billah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. So Laban ends up getting 14 years of service from Jacob. But the, but the greater thing that's happening here, and, and I want to I just sort of take a temperature gauge for how this, how this feels in your guts. But what we're seeing now in this section is the deceiver being deceived, right? The deceiver, Jacob, the one who had put on fur and tricked his blind old father into giving him the blessing, he had reversed what was supposed to happen with the firstborn and taken that blessing for himself, right? Jacob, the deceiver, the manipulator, the guy who put on costumes and used a fake voice and all of that has now been deceived. And there might be a thing in your stomach if you take a temperature gauge of it that goes... Yeah, good, God's getting revenge on him, you know? God's giving him a taste of his own medicine. I want to be really careful here that we don't reduce God to being vindictive, that we don't reduce God to being the kind of person who operates according to some sort of weird uh, cosmic sort of karma. What's happening here is, yes, Jacob is getting a little taste of his own medicine, but I I don't see this as God being uh, a God of revenge or vindication. I think Jacob is having the opportunity to see his own 
weaknesses and his own flaws and his own deception reflected back to him in the character of someone else. Jacob is deceived, and if you look at that and you're like, I don't know how in the world he consummated his marriage and didn't know it was a different woman, uh, the commentators make all kinds of suggestions in that regard. So they'll talk about veils, they'll talk about it being nighttime, they'll talk about being drunk, they'll talk about all kinds of stuff. I can't imagine a situation in which Leah wasn't complicit in this. So maybe that's me making a jump, but I just want to point out the fact that at the very least, Leah could have said, I'm not Rachel. And she doesn't, right? She doesn't do that. And I don't know whether that's compliance and she's just going along, but I secretly suspect, as I looked at the rest of the text and everybody driven by their own desires, that this older sister who has some sort of appearance that, that is you know, not as appealing as Rachel, I guess, that she wants to be married and that she kind of doesn't care what she has to do to be married and so she goes along with this plan in the same way that Jacob went along with the plan of his mother to deceive their father or his father, right? I see everybody again pursuing their own desires. He marries Leah and then he basically fulfills a week with her but he doesn't want to and then he marries Rachel a week later for another seven years of work. But if, if you think this is a recipe for joy, if you think this is a recipe for celebration, if you think this is a recipe for a beautiful love story, it's not here. This is a recipe for tragedy. This is a recipe for shame. It's a recipe for, for pain, for competition, for jealousy, for envy, for greed. These people, are, these people are busted here again. And then what results is a competition uh, that, that stems from the desire to be loved but finding themselves unloved or the desire to be fertile and finding themselves infertile. Let's read on from there. It says in verse 31, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, for she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. And again she conceived and bore a son and she said, now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, this time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah and then she ceased bearing. Look at chapter 30. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. And she said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. And Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel. And he said, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Then she said, well, here is my servant Billah. Go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant Billah as a wife and Jacob went into her. And Billah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore, she called his name Dan. Rachel's servant Billah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son and Leah said, good fortune has come. And so she called his name Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son, and Leah said, happy am I, for women have called me happy. So she called his name Asher. In the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother. Uh, as a side note here as we're reading this, mandrakes in this time period were considered both an aphrodisiac and a catalyst for procreation, a catalyst for uh, like 
having more children. It's a plant. It's got a, a bulbous fruit on it. I could show you a picture. I'm not going to do that. But just know this is superstition, right? There's a superstition around mandrakes. So it says, in the days of the wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother, Leah, uh, his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. She said to her, is it a small matter that you've taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? And Rachel said, then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, you must come into me for I've hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night. And God listened to Leah and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. And Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. And Leah conceived again and she bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment now because my husband will honor me because I've borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. And afterwards she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel and opened, uh, excuse me, God listened to her and opened her womb. And she conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph saying, may the Lord add to me another son. Uh, essentially, because of the battle between wanting to be loved and finding myself unloved, or wanting to be fertile and find myself infertile, that, that sort of envy and jealousy and strife become a, a, essentially like a, like a baby-making battle, right? All of a sudden, there is this, uh, there's this birthing war that's taking place to have more children than the other and whatever. And even as I was reading it, you, you get what I mean. It's a cringy story. As I'm reading it, there's kind of a chuckle that goes through the room, and it's not a ha-ha-ha, this is a hilarious story chuckle. It's a like, oh my gosh. Like, this is terrible. I want you to know in the story that they name these children, and none of the names of the children have to do with how happy they are that the children are there. None of the names of the children have to do with the faithfulness of God or his blessing upon their life. Not really. It's all angled in this battle and competition. I'm trying to get my husband to love me. I'm trying to get my husband to honor me. Well, you know, people say I'm happy. Even when Joseph is born, Rachel doesn't say, yes, I have my son Joseph. She goes, I hope God gives me another one, right? That's what Joseph means. It's a tragic story of a fight that results in these children being born. We see servant, the servants Bilhah and Zilpah essentially trafficked and used. We don't hear their voices at all, but they're basically utilized. The children's names all reflect the battle, not love or joy. The superstition with the mandrakes results in essentially selling Jacob for sex. And through this whole story, Jacob makes no objection he shows no empathy or compassion. Despite the struggle that's going on, and struggle, by the way, is a major theme in the life of Jacob. So the struggle with he and Esau, the struggle, struggle we'll see with him and Laban, the struggle between him and Rachel and Leah and Zilpah and Billah, there's all this struggle, and you just sort of wish that at some point God would step in, right? You want to hear God's voice. And maybe you feel the cringiness of that, like why didn't God jump in and go, hey, just sleep with the woman you're married to, right? Knock it off, right? Why didn't God take Zilpah and Billah away from there? Whatever, like we, we want him to intervene. We want him to condemn this behavior. But I would just want to point out to you again that, that God is working through all this. And I know that's just a little consolation. But the reality is that even in our own lives, there are all kinds of places where we wish God would step in, aren't there? 
Aren't there places where we wish people would hear God's voice? We wish that God would come to our boss and say, hey, you know what, you need to give that guy a raise. Or we wish that God would come to our neighbor and say, I really want you to trim back that apple tree or I'm gonna burn it down, you know? We wish that God would step in and say, why don't all of you people with lots of food give some of it to these people with no food, right? When we read this story, we feel like, where is God's voice? Why doesn't he stop some of this? The same thing is true in our experience as well. Because we live in a world today, just like they did then, where people are driven by their desires and they trample over whoever they have to trample over to get the thing they think they want or the thing they think they deserve, we're still living in a world where where God is blessing and God is moving. There, There are places in the text we just read where God sees these women, where he hears them, where he remembers them. God is not absent from this story, but he doesn't necessarily do all the things we would want him to do. And again, that's because this text is descriptive, not prescriptive. God's not using this as an allegory. He's showing us the way in which human life works when everybody is pursuing their own selfish ends. It's a tragic, cringy story from a human perspective. There's deception, preferential treatment, competition, jealousy, selfishness, abuse, neglect, loneliness, and shame. Every relationship in this story feels purely transactional. Right? It just feels like there, there's, no, there's no real care for one another. It's just, what can I get? I think it's heartbreaking in this story that the women's value, and I've already said this, is reduced to their beauty or their fertility. And we might want to look at it and go, well, yeah, yeah, but that was Bible times. I think we all know we're still living in a world today where people's value is reduced to how they look physically where women's value can be reduced to the way they look or, or anybody's value can be reduced based on the color of their skin or what country they're from or how much money they got or what kind of car they drive. We cannot look at this text and say, oh, that's just Bible times where people were treated crummy. No, it continues to happen today where people are reduced to having value based on what the culture dictates is valuable. We see in this text uh, the struggle to be loved, the struggle to find worth, And I think there are many of us who feel it, right? You feel it? The struggle to be loved, the struggle to find worth, and having to wrestle always with what the culture says makes you lovable or what the culture says makes you worthwhile. This is is human experience. It's captured in 29 and 30, but we're still feeling all of this today. And I could say to you, and I am saying to you, God redeems it, right? We talk all the time in our church about the fact that God's a redeemer. So I can say, hey, look, for all of the selfishness and all of the strife and all the pain and the shame and the loneliness, God blesses them still. And it's true, he does. We'll talk about it in a minute. But I think for most of us, that's little consolation, right? The fact that God redeems it all, it's like, well, I'm glad, but that doesn't make me feel better right now. And it didn't necessarily help Leah in the midst of her pain, and it didn't necessarily help Rachel in the midst of her pain. It didn't necessarily help these people. It's great that God redeems it, but in the here and now, sometimes that feels like little consolation. I want to remind you, when we look at this, that none of what's happening in Genesis 29 and 30 had to happen this way in order for God's promises to be fulfilled or for his blessing to be realized. None of it had to happen like this in order for God's blessing to be realized or for his promises to be fulfilled. I think sometimes we look at it at the end and we go, well, they were blessed through it and that, that means that the ends justify, or the means justify the ends. But they could have been kind to one another and they could have been loving to one another. They could have been generous to one another and God's blessing still would have been fulfilled. God's promises still would have been realized. God didn't have to make this happen this way in order to fulfill his promise. 
But the reality is that people in this time period and people in this time period are messy and we're broken. And here's something just to sort of broaden your view. All of the promises of God are only ever fulfilled in human history in the midst of people's messiness and brokenness. And the reason that is, is that there aren't any people who aren't messy and broken. All of God's promises and all of his blessings are only ever fulfilled in the midst of human messiness and brokenness because there aren't any human beings who aren't messy and broken, and that includes me and it includes you. So there is some hope, there's some light in the tunnel here, which is, yes, God redeems it all, but God can also keep his promises, and he does. God is also with us and faithful still, even in the midst of the messiness and brokenness, and in fact, he can only ever be faithful in the midst of messiness and brokenness because that's all there is, y'all, is our messiness and brokenness. It's exactly why we needed a redeemer. It's why we needed Jesus to come and take our sin upon himself to die in our place. So in closing this morning, and I'm I'm not quite done, so don't get too excited, but I, I have three truths, three truths that rose off the page to me that I want to articulate to you. Some of them will be like, no, duh, but here we go. The first one is this. The first truth I want you to see in the text and I want you to know in your own experience in our own lives is this. The selfishness of others will hurt you. And you kind of go, yeah, yeah, right, I'm alive, right, I get it. The selfishness of others will hurt you. Well, yeah, the selfishness of others will hurt you. If that's been your experience, yeah, the messiness and brokenness of other people will cause you pain. The, the Bible is not shocked or surprised by that. Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 Paul says, understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people, right? In James chapter 3, verse 16, it says, Where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. What do we see in Genesis 29 and 30? Selfish ambition and jealousy, and so a, a, a multitude of vile practice. But that's our experience as well. Truth number one that I see in the text, for whatever it's worth, the selfishness of other people will hurt you. Second truth. My selfishness is hurting other people. Uh, Let me say this in a different way. (laughs) Your selfishness hurts other people. Not, Not just can, not just as like a hypothetical, sometimes your selfishness might cause some other people pain. Literally, your selfishness today hurt other people today, and your selfishness yesterday hurt people then, and some of your selfishness from five weeks ago has been hurting people every day since then. My selfishness hurts other people. So when I say the selfishness of others will hurt you, there can be a thing in us that goes, yeah, people are jerks, right? He's right. The selfishness of others has hurt me, right? And it, it's true. But, but what you don't want to do is have this external focus that starts to point the finger at all the selfish people around you. The second truth we also see in the text is, I'm selfish also. And that selfishness in me, that desire to get what I want at any cost, to do whatever I want with no regard to the feelings of other people, it's hurting people around me. So, so we live in a world of hurt because we're hurting and being hurt all the time, right? 
all of this conflict and disappointment and pain and struggle and deceit and jealousy and greed. It's rooted in these people trying to get what they want. And it's the same today. James chapter 4 verses 1 and 2 say, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. The indication there is we'd rather fight over these things we desire than just have a conversation about it with God and others. The selfishness of other people will hurt you. Your selfishness hurts other people. Now, here, here's what can happen. If you take those two things and you put them together, maybe then your mind goes, you know what? It's a good point. I see it here in Genesis 29. People hurt me. I hurt them. I'm just going to move to Wyoming and live with the antelope, you know? Like there are cabins up there. I'm just going to go find myself a cabin away from everyone. And in that place with just me and the antelope, I will not be hurt by anyone and no one will hurt me, right? There can be this, uh, this tendency towards isolation, towards rejecting vulnerability and not letting anybody inside the walls of your castle because they will hurt you and you will hurt them, so just keep them away, right? So here's where the third truth, and this is vital, and it's in the text. Before you move to Wyoming to live with the antelope, let me remind you of one other thing we see in Genesis 29 and 30, and it's this. God uses community to correct us and to shape us and to bless us. If you move to Wyoming to live among the antelope, you will 100% miss the opportunity to be corrected in the lives of other people, to be shaped in the lives of other people, and to be blessed in and through the lives of other people. That doesn't happen in isolation. The, the, the correction happens by having our own weakness reflected back to us. You know what I'm talking about? It's very interesting in this text. I talked about it at the beginning that Laban is cut from the same cloth, bone and flesh of Jacob, right? Jacob and Laban, they're the same kind of guy, manipulative, deceptive, doing whatever they have to do to get what they want. And so now what's happening for Jacob? He's having the opportunity to see the kind of pain that is caused when you trick somebody, right? When you trick somebody, they get hurt, other people get hurt. Jacob is having his eyes open to his own weakness, it's funny, I'm, uh, I'm in the process right now of teaching my daughter, Lily, how to drive. She's get, getting ready to get her license, and we were out driving yesterday. By the way, be warned, I'm teaching my daughter how to drive. But we were out driving yesterday, and as we pull out of our neighborhood, I said, uh, you forgot to turn on your blinker. She's like, Dad, I was going to do it, right? So she, then she turns it on, but it's too late. Anyway, we turn, uh, we come up the street, and... Uh, I said, Lily, you, you've got to use your blinker. You've got to use your blinker. And she's like, I was just about to turn my blinker on, you know? So then she turns it on. And then uh, we, we c come up the, here to uh, Brea and Baston Cherry, and we're going to turn right onto Baston Cherry. We're heading down to Pete's Coffee. That's how I reward myself for living on the edge. Uh, <laughs> so we're going to drive down Baston Cherry, and uh, I don't say anything. Her blinker's not on. I don't say anything. She's like, aren't you going to say something about my blinker? And I was like, well, it's not on, but I kind of thought you didn't want me to say anything else. And she's like, that's because I was about to turn it on. So she turned, whatever, she turns it on. We turn on to Bass and Cherry and we're going down and we get to like, I don't know, Kramer or something and uh, we're behind this other car and there's this person in the other car who is going really slow. It's kind of erratic and then all of a sudden they turn really quick onto Kramer and go south and my daughter's like, where's the blinker? And I said, that, there it is, right? There it is. That was frustrating. It's frustrating to have somebody in front of you who slams on the brakes at the last minute and turns erratically. They could have let you know by using your blinker. And now you've had your own weakness reflected back to you. And what you choose to do with it is up to you. In community, 
right? In community, in being with one another, not living in Wyoming with the antelope, but being in this with, together. There are times where people hurt us because of their selfishness, and their selfishness it reflects back to us our own selfishness and gives us the opportunity to make a course correction. We have the opportunity to go, I don't want to be like that. I don't want to talk like that. I don't want to treat other people like that. I don't want other people to feel the way I feel because of the way that I was just treated. We have the opportunity to be corrected in the midst of conversation. It's interesting, or a relationship. Proverbs 27, uh, frequently quoted, says uh, in verse 17, iron sharpens iron and one man sharpens another. Most of the time when this gets quoted, it's like at a men's conference. They're like, iron sharpens iron. We are iron, we are swords, you know, whatever. Like, I, I don't know if that's exactly what the tone here is in Proverbs. How about this? Iron is just like a lump of chunky metal, and if you rub it into another lump of chunky metal, at some point it gets polished and smooth. I don't know if you've ever polished rocks. Uh, you could start. Uh, but basically the way they do that is with a tumbler, a rock tumbler, right? You take these unfinished stones and you put them into a thing that looks like a cement mixer and they just spin it and spin it and spin it and the, and the rocks bang into each other for hours and hours and hours and when it's done, they're smooth and shiny and polished. Community can be a rock tumbler and it's a blessing, right? That we can look at one another and go, I should use my blinker because it stinks when other people don't use their blinkers, but we can do that on a spiritual level. God uses community to correct us if we, will see, if we will see our own weakness reflected back to us and the pain we cause. Not only that, but he reshapes us. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse three and following, it says, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. The reality is that none of these characters in the Old Testament or none of the other characters in the New Testament, for that matter, are a picture for us of perfect Christian behavior. None of the human characters in the Bible are uh, for us to emulate 100% of the time. Jacob isn't a perfect picture of Christian behavior. Rachel, Leah, Laban, Zilha, you know, none of them, right? There is only one person in the pages of scripture that is the perfect picture of human Christian behavior, and that's the Lord Jesus. He's the only standard. Every other character in this book is like you and me. Has some great moments, has some crummy moments, moments of victory, moments of failure, moments of selfishness, moments of selflessness. But what we have the opportunity to do is to recognize that in community and in our connection with one another, God not only can correct our behavior, he reshapes us. But he doesn't reshape us into the character of Jacob or the character of Abraham or Isaac. He doesn't reshape us into the character of our favorite heroes from novels or our favorite Christian leaders or whatever. He reshapes us into the image of Christ, who is the only standard for morality, the only standard for behavior. And as Christians, we can actually compare Jacob and Laban and Rachel and Leah and Abraham and Isaac to Jesus if we want to have a sense of how we should live. If you're looking for prescriptive behavior, you can only look at Christ. 
The rest of them are all flawed in one way or another. They have good moments and bad moments, right? But if you want to look exclusively somewhere, you can only look exclusively at Jesus. So he's reshaping us into the image of Jesus. Philippians chapter 2 says, If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It says here, don't be selfish, don't be chasing your own desires. Serve one another. And then Paul goes one step further to say, like Jesus, have the mind of Jesus, who was God and didn't feel like he needed to shout that all the time. Laid down his life in service of other people. He didn't feel like he needed to cling to it, but gave it up in service of others. God uses community to correct us, to reshape us, and ultimately, and I've already said this, to bless us. The reality is, by the time we get to the end of the section we're studying today in Genesis 30, 24, God's promise, in some shape, has been fulfilled. Now, all of a sudden, Jacob has all these descendants, which he didn't have before. As we'll see in the coming section, Jacob will have all kinds of livestock and he'll have all kinds of property and God is gonna bless him in all the ways that God said he would bless him. God does that in the midst of this difficult and sometimes cringy community. He has descendants and food and shelter and material needs, community and love. God draws all of these blessings out of this struggle. And the reality for us as well is because of the faithfulness of God, even though it's difficult and even though there's brokenness, even though the selfishness of others will hurt you and your selfishness will hurt other people, God can draw a blessing out of the struggle in community. We do not abandon community because it's in the struggle of community that we're corrected, that we're reshaped into the image of Christ and that we're blessed by God. He's built us for family, he's built us for the body, for church. And that, that message is true in the midst of this story, even as cringy as it is, that God's promise is fulfilled even in the midst of all that struggle and pain. Would you pray with me? God, I, I pray as I do every week that this wouldn't just be an academic exercise, that we wouldn't come into this place and just listen to teaching for the sake of listening to teaching but that it would be a catalyst, that it would be provocative, that it would stir and push us. Will you help us to think differently about community, even in the struggle of community, for the way in which you correct and shape and bless us, even in the midst of our messiness? We pray that in Christ's name, amen.